One of the things I've always wanted to do is write a book on it shouldn't happen to a pastor. Today's one of those moments. Picture the scene, if you will. We are in an empty warehouse. I've got an audience of one, AJ, who's sitting over there reading his text messages. I've got a camera and you. Well, on Sunday, we had a number of glitches with the message and we thought, why not pull it? But the context and the beauty of the verses just require us to do it afresh. So here I am, cold Thursday afternoon in a warehouse and you, our dear friend, listening to it, watching it online. This has been a remarkable book, First John. The more we're spending time in it, the more we realize the incredible love that John the Apostle had for those who were his readers, hearers. We've learned from the Gospel Coalition from Tim Mackey, it's probably a poetic sermon rather than a letter. But in my mind's eye, I see this old man bent over, probably uh, his sight not as good as it should be, his hearing not as good as it should be, and really talking. And I wonder if there was a scribe scrambling to keep up with all of John's musings. It also seems to be a, where he does not embellish on much. He kind of just says it as he sees it. And so it's a rich book. These chapters are loaded with content, transformative content. And so we thought, let's do it and let's do it again. So I wonder if you would turn with me to this passage or just listen as I read it. It is 1 John, it is the second chapter, and it is from verse 15 onwards. John writes, do not love the world. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. That's the kind of thing I'm talking about. He just shoots from the hip. He's not trying to be PC. He's not trying to be sensitive to everyone's feelings. He just says, if you love the world, the love of the Father ain't in you. Pretty hardcore. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. These three things, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, is not from the Father, but is from the world, the cosmos, the world systems. And the world is passing away along with its desires. Don't invest yourself, John says, in that which is so temporary, it will just disappear. Rather, he goes on to say, invest yourself. Whoever does the will of God abides forever. Do not love, abide in the will of God forever. The one will pass away. The one is temporary. It offers a short-term satisfaction, a kind of a part-time love. The other is this great eternal set of implications as we walk in the will of God. So our theme has been Legacy Matters. And we're drilling down today a little bit on evil matters. Now, this is a remarkable passage, and I want to jump into one of the wondrous apocalyptic writings of the Scriptures, the book of Revelation, right at the end of the text, one that John wrote, presumably the same dude. And we read this rather interesting kind of mystical account, almost like the Lord of the Rings. And the great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and her head, the crown of 12 stars. And she was pregnant and was crying out in birth pangs. I'm going to run forward just a tad. It said, and there appeared in heaven a great red dragon. Now we know the dragon is one of the pictures of the enemy, the Satan, the adversary, our, uh, the, the liar, the father of lies, um, the devil. 
And his tail swept down a third of the stars of the heaven and cast them on the earth. What on earth are we reading? And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth. Picture, if you will, the woman is about to go into labor. She's about to produce a child. And the dragon is waiting eagerly to catch up the child and to destroy the child. So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness. And she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for these number of days. Now, it's interesting. Theologians say, some say, well, the woman is Mary, Catholics particularly. Others say, no, 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 it's Israel. Others, again, the church. You take your pick. What seems to be universal is that the child is Jesus and the dragon is our adversary. And that war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon the great dragon, the ancient serpent, the devil, the satan, the deceiver of the whole world. Now, why is this all important in the light of this passage from John? We are, dear friends, involved in spiritual combat. I know it's not popular today to speak on these subjects, to view the Christian journey as almost a militaristic one, but there are portions to which this is true. And I want to argue this afternoon that those three things, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, are the three weapons the enemy uses against every one of us to greater or lesser degrees. Some of us are more vulnerable to the lust of the flesh. Others are more vulnerable to the lust of the eyes. And again, others, the pride of life. But the picture, this apocryphal picture, picture is the dragon at war with Michael. Michael is fighting with all the other angels fighting on our behalf. It is a massive spiritual combat. And I heard a loud voice in heaven. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come for the accuser of the brothers. They've come to defeat the accuser, the adversary, the liar, the devil, the serpent, the dragon who has been thrown down and who accuses them day and night before God. That little verse, subverse really, who accuses them before God day and night. I remember as an 18, 19-year-old new convert being stunned by that. The enemy does consistently accuse us. But they, the believers, conquered him, the enemy, through three things. The blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and they loved not their lives even unto death. So here we have a little more of the picture. We have a dragon, the devil, fighting against the uh, angelic hosts, fighting using us as the combat point in this whole story, using three primary weapons he does, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he comes against us as a, the battering ram over and over, accusing us day and night, day and night, and Michael and the other angels fighting on our behalf, and John writes in this great climactic moment, but they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb, the victory of the cross, by the word of their testimony, how powerful our stories are that we repeat over and over again, and that they did not love their life even as unto death. It's such good reading to take time and look at some of the great martyrs of old to get a sense of what it is they felt like and thought like as they were about to go to eternity. Remember the great battle of Thermopylae 
when 300 Greeks stood against the Persian horde and howled and howled. It does for great cinematography. It does for great poetry. It does for great military history, where 300 of them in a, in a gorge, a kind of this, this valley, stood against them as wave upon wave of Persians came against them. And their defeat was ultimately by one amongst them who betrayed them. But they held their line. We don't really like, dear friends, the warring component in our faith. We want a pleasant faith. We want a gentle faith. We want a sensitive faith. We want a faith of love. And I agree with all of those. We, we don't want the combat zone of our spirituality. Hudson Taylor, the, the, the founding father of modern mission, said this, all God's giants have been weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned on God being with them. And I do want to propose that the frontline combat zone for the millennials is going to be sexuality and all that it embraces. We don't have time now to develop that, but that is the frontline that is coming against the church, especially the younger church, at full tilt. Do not love the world, John wrote, and the things of the world. Anyone who loves the world, the love of the Father, is not in him for all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but it is of the world. For the world is passing away and the lust of the flesh with it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. I love Eugene Peterson's kind of interpretation of the text, writing it for the now generation. He said, don't love the world's ways. Don't love the world's goods. Love of the world squeezes out the love of God. Think for a moment. Instagram. I have been off Instagram for years and I found myself being caught up with this idea of the love of the world squeezes out the love of God. The sense of, wow, look at the car they drive. Oh, look at the nations they've gone to. Oh, look at the size of their church. Oh, look at the, the building. Oh, look at the clothes they wear. That love for the world squeezes out the love for the Father. He carries on saying, everything that goes on in the world, wanting your own way, wanting everything by yourself, and wanting to appear important has nothing to do with the Father. It isolates you from him. Have you experienced that? I have. When one of these three things begins to kind of weasel their way into my heart and into my mind, it's amazing how the love of God begins to shrivel up like a sponge on a hot day. But when we focus in on our great and wondrous Jesus, the redemption he offers, the power of the love he brings, the forgiveness that he puts on the table, the healing and the wholeness that he offers up to us, oh, the love of God just grows and grows and grows in our hearts. And John is basically saying, you and I have to choose which of these we will walk in. While I was preparing, I was reminded of this great passage which links in with our thread so far. 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 8. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger from Satan. Now, over the years, I've heard many preach from this, and some have just said, oh, we don't know what the thorn of the flesh is. No, no, we actually do. The Bible is not... Uh, nuanced about it, it's a messenger from Satan. You see the same thing, the accuser who uh, accuses us day and night, here he is again, 
So the question I ask you, what is the enemy's message to you? Invariably, his message is to create shame. Can't believe he did it. Guilt. I feel really ongoingly dreadful about doing it and I can't find freedom. Disqualification, you will never amount to anything. What they said about you when you were a kid, that's definitely your defining future. Or unforgivability. There's no way God will forgive that sin. Do you see how the persistence of the messenger of Satan is sent to torment me? Three times. Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weakness so that Christ's power may rest on me. My dear friends, we can sometimes feel overwhelmed by trying to deal with the lust of the flesh and the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. And it all feels way too much. But here Paul gives us this very simple injunction. My grace is sufficient for you. It doesn't matter how the enemy comes to torment you, to call you, to require you, to declare your unforgivability. The simple statement, your grace is sufficient for me. In fact, Paul says it another way in 2 Timothy 3.1. There will be terrible times in the last days where people will become lovers of themselves, lovers of money, lovers of pleasure, boastful, proud, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, without love, unforgiving, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not lovers of good, but lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Now, folks, that feels overwhelming, but the great understanding of this passage and how we can rise above lovers of the flesh, lovers of what we see, desire, covet, and the pride of life is grace. Now, over the years, I've pontificated on grace. I've looked at my own life. I've looked at the churches I've led. I've looked at how grace has impacted different people at different times. And essentially, I've come up with three very simple phrases that describe grace and its exquisite beauty. It is a beautiful word. It is a truth that unlocks a broken soul. It is a, the life of God that permeates every corner of our humanity and offers hope in the face of the torment and the assault that the messenger brings against us all of the time. And these are the three phrases. Firstly, undeserved mercy. It's where God gives us something we don't deserve. We don't deserve mercy. We don't deserve kindness and goodness and forgiveness. But that's what grace puts on the table. It says, my, my dear son and daughter, I give you what you don't deserve. I give you mercy and his mercies on you every morning, no matter what you did. Do you understand how scandalous grace is? That every morning God offers us new undeserved mercy. Unmerited favor, secondly, it's where God places his goodness on us that grants us an expression of, of favor and life 
in the world around us. And again, as much as the mercy is undeserved, this favor is unmerited. I live a life disproportionate to my qualification, experience, what I should be doing. And then thirdly, not only is it mercy and favor, but it is sovereign power where God gives me the power to be able to fight and resist the tormentor, the accuser, the liar. I love this verse in Titus. Titus is also one of those short little books that Paul wrote to a dear friend, a fellow colleague, and a, a workman for the kingdom. And he said, for the grace of God has appeared. The grace of God has appeared. That implies it's a person. It's not a thing. It's not a principle or a collection of definitions. It's a person called Jesus. The grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us this grace, this grace who is Jesus, teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. Now, friends, you and I know when we wrestle with sin and the tormentor comes against us and the accuser and the seducer and the liar comes against us, for every one of us, there is that moment where we know if I can call out to Jesus now, grace appears and teaches me to say no to ungodliness. That key on my computer that will take me to the world of pornography or keep me in a place of righteousness and godliness and purity. That's what happens here. This grace, Jesus teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to worldly passions. Isn't that a message of hope? Isn't that a message of promise? That when I face these things, the lust of the flesh, where all those things that I was created with, the desire for intimacy, the desire for sexual intimacy, the desire to feel my body fully human, fully alive, all those things get twisted, disproportionately exaggerated to a point where it becomes my master and not my servant. Jesus says, I can teach you to say no to those disproportionate lusts or the lust of, of the eyes, what I see around me. I had coffee this morning at a local coffee shop and once again I was just stunned by how many young girls particularly walk around filled with all sorts of things that they hope will make them look more beautiful because someone has told them the lust of the eyes you will be more beautiful you will look more appealing because of those things now I'm not here to cast judgment as to whether that is morally good or bad what I'm here to expose is the lusts of the eyes something that drives me that's not God-given goodness God-given purity I'm not against people having those things of course but my appeal is that we are not held captive to the things we see that drive us to a must-have, where I will run up my credit card so I have the latest jacket or the newest boots or the latest purse or the newest computer or iPhone. It just loses sync because the lust of the eyes, I must have, I must have, I must have, begins to hold me captive. Get it no matter the cost. But here... Paul says, Jesus, who is grace, teaches me to say no to ungodliness. I love it. Every time there is an excess where the enemy takes us out here, there is invariably the God-authored other. And I'm just so curious 
by the heartbeat of minimalism. Now, you don't have to go all the way out there. Meryl and I certainly are not. But we're not held captive to always getting the latest. Between you and me, I drive an old Passat. It's kind of embarrassing, actually. And everything inside of me wants a fancy car, and I'll get something cool. I know I will. But it's been a good lesson for me to overcome the things that drive me. Well, I should have this kind of car, or I should present myself in this kind of way. No, the grace of God, Jesus, teaches me to say no to ungodliness and find my identities. Not the car I drive, or the clothes I wear, or the house that I live in, but it's Jesus who teaches me to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. John Wesley defines grace, you know, the great founder of Methodism. What a remarkable man. And he defined grace as God's bounty or favor, his free, undeserved favor. Man having no claim to the least of his mercies, it was free grace that formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into him a living soul. The book of discipline says it this way, it's the undeserved, unmerited and loving action of God in human existence through the ever-present Holy Spirit. Grace pervades all of creation and is universally present. The grace of God is his presence to create, to heal, to forgive, to reconcile, and to transform the human heart, communities, and the entire creation. I love these quotes. So we've looked at Revelation 12 and the war that we're in, and the dragon who tried to destroy the child but could not. We've grown to understand that there is this spiritual combat happening and the weapons of defense that we have are the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony and we did not love our life even as unto death. We've seen the power of grace because grace is Jesus who brought salvation to all the world, teaching us to say no to ungodliness, merit and favor and power available to us so that we are not held captive, bondage to the enemy's fiery darts of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Dallas Willard said, grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish what we cannot accomplish on our own. I want to just build on grace a little, and we will land shortly. Much of what we do in life is based on our natural skills, personality, and abilities. It's what we can do, whether we're a Christian or not a Christian. I might be able to be a soccer player or a dancer or an accountant, because that's my personality and my skills and my abilities. But the invitation of grace is to live a life beyond my natural personality, abilities, and skills. It's like 20% of what God calls me to is above that. And I want to argue with you today, that's where grace appears. Dallas Willard again. Grace is God acting in our lives to accomplish what we cannot accomplish on our own. We all feel overwhelmed somewhere along the line as Christians. We all feel it's too much, trying to fight sin, trying to live out my calling, trying to pray, remembering to read my Bible, hanging out in a small home community or house church or a table community or something, and have kids and get to, oh, it's all too much. But grace is sovereign power. 
When I submit myself to grace on a daily basis and I allow grace to teach me to say no to ungodliness and yes to a life of righteousness, where I allow the power of God to pour out into my life, I can, like Hudson Taylor, say, I am no longer anxious about anything. As I realize he is able to carry out his will for me, I, I'm no longer anxious about anything. As I realize he is able to carry out his will for me, it does not matter where he places me or how. This is for him to consider, not me. For in the easiest positions, he will give me grace. And in the most difficult ones, his grace is sufficient. Here's a man who moved to China at a time missionaryism was not viewed with favor in the church in England. And he learned by himself. I think two of his wives died in the mission field. I think a few of his kids died in the mission field. And yet he says, I'm no longer anxious. I'm not anxious about anything. As I realize he is able to carry out his will for me. What about you and me? That's why I wanted to preach this again. It might not be as good as if we had all the people in the room and I'm feeding off them and listening and being sensitive to them. It may feel a little more cold and systematic, but I want this truth to go out, that there is hope against the lust of the flesh, my natural passions exaggerated by the enemy, the lust of the eyes, I want, I want, I want, materialism holds me captive, the pride of life, I boastfully put myself first above all other things, all other people. Man, I love the church when she lives for the benefit of others. Those beautiful God lovers, Mother Teresa, who live for the benefit of others. We can't do that in our natural humanity. We're way too weak and fragile. But when grace appeared, Jesus he teaches me to say no to ungodliness. And I begin to live a life not driven by the pride of life. I am the center of my universe. Charles Taylor speaks of expressive individualism. No, no, no. I live for the benefit of others. I bow a humble knee to the well-being of others, preferring them above myself. The ultimate love and the ultimate impact of the gospel that Jesus has given to us. Let me land. So, let's acknowledge that we are at war. Uh, what does your enemy look like? Mine. What is the message he uses against us? I want to ask you to write them down. Make it clear to yourself. It will impact your reading of the scriptures, your prayer, the way you connect with people, and the way you fight him with the blood of the Lamb and the word of your testimony, and that you do not love your life as even unto death. And then, once you acknowledge that we're at war and you know the message he comes at you with, how do you counter his schemes? What is this biblical essence like for you to fight the enemy? What is it? Well, what is the tool, the weapon that God has given you to say, no, Satan, I have grace and grace teaches me to say no to ungodliness. I will not bow or surrender to your subtle, nuanced or overtly tormenting instructions. 
And this, dear friends, is my prayer for you. God bless you. Thank you for sharing this moment with me. Thanks for letting us go back to the text and open it up. Uh, we'll see you soon. God bless you.